As a student of advocacy and activism, I draw warmth from the heat of others' passions. I marvel at the diversity of origin stories and burst with curiosity about what might come next. How did they start on this journey? And why do they persist? I've been a nurse for 50 years. One of the best things about nursing for me was the license to be nosy for a brief time, a visit, or a stay. This nosiness melds nicely as a podcaster for an episode. And I often ask guests, when did you realize health was fragile? Another student of advocacy and activism is our guest, Susanna Fox. Susanna is a health and technology strategist. Her book, Rebel Health, a field guide to the patient-led revolution in medical care has just been published by MIT Press. She is a former chief technology officer for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where she led an open data and innovation lab. She has served as the entrepreneur in residence at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and she directed the health portfolio at the Pew Research Center's Internet Project. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. You'll listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome surface of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Thank you. Susanna Fox, how are you? It's so good to see you. I've been really looking forward to this. You've been my idol for a long time. I think I first learned about you when you were at Pew. And um, yep. I just thought your, I don't, I thought your perspective and your research was so useful, and so then I started. And you've done so many different things. Okay, when did you first realize health was fragile? Wow, I think the first time I really realized that health was fragile was when my dad was a flatliner on the table at the hospital after his heart attack. And he was in his 50s. And he was someone who, to, to anyone who looked at him, would have thought that he was a health nut. He ran four miles three times a week. He was fit. He loved to hike. He was a mountain climber. And yet he had genetically high cholesterol and a hidden blocked artery. And so they luckily were able to revive him and he had open heart surgery and he lived long enough to then get kidney cancer in his 60s and melanoma in his 70s. And so dad was somebody who was my model for lifelong health and for perseverance. So I love this question because it's both a question that gets to how did you learn that health was fragile, but then also what what happened when you learned that health was fragile? And for me, 
it was seeing my dad persevere to regain his health each time he had a setback. Oh, that's admirable. Okay, so you had these experiences, and now you're in activism. And how did that path happen? Like, how did you get where you are now? I actually don't think of myself as an activist. I think of myself as a researcher and a strategist who collects data, who studies the landscape, and then tells the truth about what I see so that people can enter into a landscape with an understanding that if they're going to build something on the frontier of healthcare and technology, they need to build it on sound foundations. They need to understand the truth of the situation. And But I have evolved as a researcher. When I started this work and met Tom Ferguson, who was my mentor, when I was working at the Pew Research Center for Lee Rainey, and we hired Tom as an advisor. And Tom was the one who said, if you want to understand the future of healthcare and technology, you have to spend time with patients who are the hackers and rebels and cowboys who are on the frontier, bending tools until they break. And that's when I started spending time in online patient communities back in the year 2001. And Tom, I think, would have identified as an advocate and an activist. And he was often pulling me towards that. And I was, frankly, resisting it (laughs) and saying, no, I'm just, I'm over here as a researcher. I, I don't make a judgment about whether something is good or bad. I'm just telling people the way that, that, the way that the data lays. And and yet, after 14 years at the Pew Research Center, I actually went to Lee Rainey and the then president of the Pew Research Center, Alan Murray, and said, I've written 50 papers about the internet and healthcare, and I think I know what should happen next. I actually have opinions about what really is the, what are the megatrends that are changing healthcare? And they said, that's great. You can't work here anymore. Because the Pew Research Center rightly holds it as a core value that their researchers don't have an opinion about the way things should go. And so I've maintained my sense of being a researcher where I really, I follow the data. And yet I also recognize that a researcher where, where I train my gaze, I think of myself as if I have a miner's light on my head. <laughs> and where I train my gaze to look is an editorial choice. And by looking closely at patients and survivors and caregivers, I know that I'm making a choice to honor the work that they're doing. And so in that sense, I've gotten pulled towards advocacy, but I personally don't identify as an advocate. And when you say that resonates with me because for me, what you have been is you've helped to inform my work and mostly inform my work in terms of perception. 
Like, how are people perceiving? So at Pew, you did a lot of surveys. And now you're, you're collecting hacks and experiences. So it, do you see yourself as a perception researcher? Stories and numbers. Stories and numbers, yeah. And and it was in getting pulled into those higher level conversations about healthcare at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at HHS, and being part of the federal government that I saw how people who haven't had the privilege to spend time in online patient communities, how they they did not see what I saw, which is how much innovation was growing up between the cracks of what we can all acknowledge is a broken healthcare system. That's so interesting. I'm on the board of PCORI, and it's a very interesting place to be. And so my image is not so much the cracks, but where, and I think we're saying this, we have the same idea, just looking at it differently, is I feel like the innovations are absolutely happening in communities. People have a problem to solve and people get other people together and they figure out what's going to work for us. And so to a system, it looks like things are coming up through the cracks, but that's a system view. The seed is underground and there's all these roots and there's all this activity. And then some little thing busts up through the the institutions. And, but then the, in terms of like research, Picori has a lot of money and spends it on patient centered comparative effectiveness research with the idea of generalizing what people have been able to learn. And I've started to think, and really, I'll tell you, it's used. Like, I never thought of hacking like you you do in your language. And so it was like hearing you write about hacking made me think that maybe hacking is all there is. Like, this idea that the activism is to change the system, maybe that it's rather to cultivate the hacking. And it doesn't affect the whole country like business does going after the dollar, but it still impacts people. I actually, I want to react to that because because I love this provocation that the metaphor of something growing up between the cracks is a system-centered view. I love that. The other way that I think about the patient-led, caregiver-led, survivor-led revolution is that they are, we are, building the missing infrastructure, that there are things that are missing and they're building that infrastructure for themselves. I also want to say that often when I'm describing a team of people that come together to solve a problem, 
you could use the same language to describe, frankly, a lot yeah. of startup companies, the team of people who come together to solve a problem that they think they have the answer and they want to affect the system. They want to help people. They want to scale. And that's the same thing that we see in the patient-led revolution. They want to help people and they want to scale. And it's a very interesting question to think about what are the motivations? The motivation to help people is at the base of a lot of startup companies, a lot of nonprofits, a lot of patient-led teams. And yet, how do you do that? You need resources. So how do you get those resources? That is a really interesting thread to pull on, but I really appreciate that provocation. Thank you. I need your help as I expand my audience to younger people in advocacy. I'm doing more in short form videos. Please help by pointing me to communities of young advocates and channels and hashtags they use so I can listen and learn. I now have one URL for all channels and media. That's Linktree slash Health Hats. Linktree is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E and then slash Health Hats, one word, where you can subscribe, access episodes, my website and social media, and search the Health Hats archive. Your support is appreciated. Please visit Linktree slash Health Hats. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to your book. I'm intrigued by your talking about seekers, networkers, solvers, and champions. But I want to start with which archetype are you? It's a good question. So let me quickly yes. describe each one Thank and you. then... And then I'll share which one that I identify as most often. So the first group are seekers. Seekers are people who feel that they're not getting answers to their questions. And the key here is that they get to decide whether their questions are being answered. They get to decide if the information is enough. And they, they decide to go out on the hunt for more and better information. And it's that spark that jolt of energy that makes someone become a seeker that that I'm really intrigued by. Because often when someone gets hit by a health challenge, they might be too stunned or exhausted to raise their hand and try and go out on the hunt. So that's seekers. They go out on the hunt for information and they don't give up. The second group are networkers. Networkers are people who just naturally learn in community. They can't help but talk to other people, whether online or offline. When they find something useful, they can't wait to share it with their community. They're people who pool resources and create community where, frankly, wherever they go. The third group are solvers attack problems. If they are faced with a assistive device or medical device that isn't working for them. They will try to take it apart and put it back together again. They will hack it, meaning they will try and find an elegant solution as a workaround, which is the original definition of a hack. Solver can also look at a system and see the flaws in it and, again, want to contribute to fixing that system. The fourth group are champions. 
champions have access to resources that are generally controlled by mainstream healthcare or mainstream institutions, things like funding, media attention, regulatory guidance, access to labs and manufacturing facilities or special materials. A champion will look across the landscape, see a patient-led or survivor-led team that has a great idea but is in need of the resource that they control, and they will share it with them. They'll infuse that team with a resource that the patient-led team needs to scale their idea. So you ask which I identify as. At my core, I'm a networker. I am almost infamous for not being able to resist talking to people. (laughs) And I love it. It's feature or flaw. It's part of who I am. I love to learn from people. And I think that is a trait of networkers. I would say that when I've needed to, I've taken on the role of a seeker and even taken on the role of a solver. I don't think I'm a natural solver, but when I've had to, I've I figured out how to fix something. And I've also stepped into a role as a champion. When I was at HHS, for example, starting the Invent Health Initiative, which brought this idea of patients and survivors and caregivers who are creating new assistive and medical devices, the hardware of healthcare, bringing that, them into this conversation at the level of the federal government. I think that I am also at heart a networker and a champion. And I think that a champion now that I'm older and I'm quote-unquote retired, and I've got this seat on the board of PCORI, and I have a podcast. I'm not so much a seeker. I'm a solver, but mostly I use other people. I'm very intrigued by this. Now, when I was a boss, I spent time looking at my team first. I don't know. I would call the herd. Not a very nice way to say it. There were people that just had no business being on the team and were dragging everybody down. And when that happened, they got to go. And then I would look at what was missing. And I'm a person who has a lot of ideas and a lot of energy, and I'm a good leader, and I can do the grunt work, but I'm not really a maintainer. And I don't, like, I need help. Like, once it's figured out, you got to persist. There's different kinds of persistence. There's problem-solving persistence, and there's maintenance persistence. And so I would look for people who had what I or the team didn't have, which actually was wonderful because it just works so much better. And But I didn't think about seekers, networkers, solvers, and champions, which is a whole different way of looking at it. And so now I, I feel like my work is I help the helpers. I don't do that much. I spent 50 years as a nurse where I really, I spent 20 years as a direct care nurse. 
And then I got into being a student of organizational health rather than individual health. And so then I was I was a leader. And the challenge now of when I see people who are champions and they are just because you're a champion doesn't mean you're a good leader. And so I have this feeling like the, having an understanding of seekers, networkers, solvers, and champions would help people who are champions be better champions. Does that make any sense? It does make sense because when I was writing this book, I actually didn't start out to include the archetypes. I originally started the book as a way to try to trace the stages of innovation that the patient-led revolution is going through. And so, in but in trying, I realized that in trying to explain the various stages of innovation, it was, I became more and more intrigued by the actors within each stage and what roles they played. And I realized that it would be more helpful to, instead of talking about these stages, to talk about the people, to talk about the actors, and to talk about what are the traits that I'm observing. And I went back into my field notes. I have 20 years of field notes of talking to people, interviewing people, survey research to start to identify the archetypes. And then I did fresh interviews to test these ideas. And I want to also share that the seekers, networkers, and solvers emerged immediately. That was, it was very clear to me. And actually, often when I talk about peer-to-peer healthcare and the patient-led revolution, people say, oh, I know exactly what you mean. And they describe networkers. They describe people who have started Facebook groups, who, who use Twitter to organize, et cetera. And I say, yes, and there's another group of people who are seekers who may never actually be networkers. And there's solvers who also may not be interested in sharing their inventions, but who can't help but keep inventing <laughs> it was the champions that emerged as I was writing the book because I realized how powerful it is when, how does something move from being a grassroots initiative where there's something that's helping a few people, a small group of people, how do you scale that so that it can move to something that is recognized by the mainstream that has been lifted up and given the resources that it needs. And it's only through the the intervention of champions, unless there is an incredible group of people that are able to basically be networkers and they don't need the mainstream to to notice what they're doing to serve their community. But that's an exceptional group of people. So the two examples that I'm aware of this minute 
about doing the doing more generalization is the Camden Coalition and the World Health Network. Those are two organizations that intrigue me. I think it's really hard to expand beyond the thing that's common about seekers, network solvers, and champions is they have a fire. It, you can taste it. And to me, I sometimes I have to protect myself um, because it's so intense. I think about when I first met Regina Holiday, it was like, oh my God, like I needed a suit. And then I learned that I learned to thrive on it rather than protect myself from it. There is an energy field around revolutionaries. Not everyone is cut out to be a rebel. And one of the things that's really important to know is that you don't have to actually be a rebel to gain the skills and gain the value from the patient-led revolution. You could temporarily recruit somebody to your team. So this is a really, thank you so much for bringing up this like energy that can surround someone. And also people are hesitant and say, wait, I don't want to be a rebel. I don't want to, to cause I'm just trying revolution. to take care of my kid but, or my mom I'm just or whatever. To take care of my kid. Exactly. So you can tap into the revolution. You can tap into the energy and get what you need. And you don't have to be part of the revolution. You don't have to be a rebel yourself to benefit from the patient-led revolution. Thank you. I used to have this conversation with Casey Quinlan because in private, I mean, in public, Casey is a revolutionary. There's just no question. She was the epitome of a revolutionary in healthcare. And I would just say to her, I like to work from the inside. I like to understand how the operant, how things operate. It was like how I dealt with the draft when I was 16 and I was worried about being drafted. I trained to be a, a draft counselor because I wanted to learn the ins and outs. And so that sort of set me up to want to work from the inside. But I couldn't have done it without the revolutionaries who, you know, started the programs and trained me. And you're right. So, again, I think this business of archetypes and energy is learning how to create the balance for the moment to get the next thing done. A lot of times the people that I work with who are um, hackers or change agents or whatever, activists, is there's like a sense of disappointment that energy wanes, waxes and wanes. And I think it's okay. I'm more of a, where are we today? What are we going to do now? That's how I manage my health is, okay, you know. I have MS. It sucks. Okay, here I am. What do I do? Okay, this new thing is happening. What do I do now? 
whatever. I want to do something. Yeah, I don't really have the capabilities yeah. right now, but how could I have the capabilities? What do I need? Oh, anyway, and it changes. And so I think with champions, I don't you see I'm focusing on champions in this conversation. Actually, I think champions need a lot of help. It's hard work. It's such a, I think it's a lot of the, is this fair to say, a lot of the people you work with are hurt. Like, why does somebody get into healthcare advocacy, healthcare hacking? It's something shitty happened to them, to theirs. And so that that's a, a sort of head of steam. It's a, a kind of head of steam. I don't mean a head of steam. It's a type of head mm -hmm. of steam that's hard to work with sometimes. And I really, so I read your, your PDF when you sent it out. And now you're a pub. Oh, so your book. But anyway, one minute and then we're going to, you're going to tell us about your book in more detail. But I'm ready to, Wait. I'm waiting for the publication on what is it, February 4th or something at 13th. February 13th. Thank you. And I really want to get into these archetypes some more and think about how that can help champions. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So tell so, us about so, it. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. We've gotten into the archetypes that yeah. I introduced in the book. And when you referred to the PDF, I should I should share that that you were part of a small group of people that I shared a preview, and uh, I sent you the PDF so that you could read it. We could have this conversation and other conversations. Thank you so much for being a, a preview reader. So Rebel Health, the field guide to the patient-led revolution in medical care, coming out from MIT Press, February thirteenth. You can pre-order it now. I wrote it so that anyone who gets hit by a diagnosis, a health challenge, whatever it is in your life that you find yourself in the maze of healthcare and you feel alone, please know that you are not alone. There's a group of people who would love to help you find the way out of that maze if they only knew how to find you. And so if you can find the courage to raise your hand, to go out on the hunt as a seeker, to join a group as a networker, there are people who are ready to help you. So I, I wrote it for the general population. I think everyone is going to have a health challenge. It's not a question of if, but when. That's one group of people for whom I wrote the book. I also was thinking about my friends who are in the C-suite of healthcare, who serve in government positions, who have a lot of serious challenges in terms of the business that they are doing, the research they're conducting, the policies that they're writing, and they could benefit from the incredible innovations and learning that are happening just underneath the surface of their gaze. The patient-led revolution, if you can align the patient-led revolution goals with your goals, whether it's 
your business or your policymaking or your research, you will benefit from All the energy operations. that is being Absolutely. We all have something to learn from patients, survivors, and caregivers. Wow. Okay. What do you think the most important things we've talked about are? One of the most important messages of the book is that you can step into your power as a patient, as a caregiver, and as a leader. And what I tried to do was introduce a way to think about power, a way to think about either stepping into your own power or sharing the power that you already have with people to solve healthcare problems. Tevi, may the force be with you. One, one other point that I wanted to make is something that they came out in one of the discussions in the preview group. Someone asked in the group, so if there's a rebel alliance um, in healthcare, who's the empire? Who's the enemy? And Ben West, who is a wonderful data hacker in the diabetes space, said the, that the enemy is disease. We're not going to point fingers at any one entity, any part of the industry. The common enemy for humanity is disease, and we need to stay united in working against the spread of, of disease. So I love that as another theme, that Rebel Health is about lifting up science. It's about lifting up the social nature of healthcare. It's about accelerating what is already happening, what is frankly a really ancient human condition where we want to connect with other people and solve problems together. And technology is helping us to do that faster. Thank you. This is great. I can't recommend Rebel Health by Susanna Fox enough. She says, the enemy is disease. Thanks for that golden rule. Susanna's archetypes, seeker, solver, networker, and champion, melds well with one of my frames for health and advocacy. The three T's and the two C's. Trust, time, talk, control, and connection. As a person who sees life as gray, not black and white, the one absolute I found is that almost all leaders in healthcare perceive that they lead chaos. The archetypes plus the three T's and two C's may help leaders slightly control the chaos. Some order may be all we can ask for. Read Rebel Health. You'll love it. Thanks. I host, write, and produce Health Hats, the podcast, with assistance from Kayla Nelson and Leon and Oscar Van Leeuwen. Music from Joey Van Leeuwen. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I buy my hats at Selma Gundy, Boston, and my coffee from the Jennifer Stone Collective. Links in the show notes. I'm grateful to you who have the critical roles 
as listeners, readers, and watchers. Subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block. 